Welcome to the Nemeth Report podcast. I'm Dr. Tammy Nemeth, historian and independent researcher, and I'll be your host. It is July 8, 2021, and today's podcast episode will explore the issue of the climate movement's campaign to destroy the Canadian oil sands industry by landlocking production and blocking pipelines to the Arctic and moving oil through the Arctic. My guest today will be Deidre Garrick, independent researcher and energy advocate and author of the report, Arctic Development and Shipping Constraints, What is the Anti-Development Agenda in Canada's Arctic? There is a transnational global progressive movement to enable a fundamental paradigm shift or a great transformation or great reset of our entire Western society. Our current civilization has prospered to a point never seen before in the history of the world, not only because of the rise of market economies and the underlying core Western values of individual freedoms, property rights, the rule of law and free trade, but also because it has been fueled by reliable, efficient and affordable hydrocarbons. Unfortunately, all of these things that allow for greater prosperity are being eroded to the point of collapse. Climate change is being used as the justification for this system change and the net zero revolution. The hydrocarbon production and consumption in the Western developed countries will be sacrificed first for the elusive and ill-defined net zero future, which means all access points to the global market for Canadian hydrocarbons yield or choked off. This has been one of the coordinated aims of the anti-development, anti-oil sands campaign since 2008. In the tar sands campaign strategy paper of October 2008, funded in large part by the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and Tides Canada, it states specifically, and I quote, our theory of change is to constrain the growth of tar sands production by increasing the perception of financial risks by potential investors and by choking off the necessary infrastructure of the tar sands. It is essential to delay or block approval of pipelines that can deliver the oil to customer refineries in the US and Asia, end quote. Remember, that was in 2008. 13 years later, the anti-oil sands campaign has so far been successful in landlocking production, intimidating investors, preventing new pipelines for Canadian consumption or export markets, and influencing the Canadian government to voluntarily support these policies. The first high-profile target and success was the stopping of the Keystone XL pipeline to the United States. Then it was the cancelling of the Northern Gateway project to stop the potential export of Alberta's oil to world markets in the Pacific region. Then the Energy East project was cancelled that would have seen Alberta's oil exported to the Atlantic region. And now the Arctic region is being targeted through regulatory actions, such as a proposed network of marine protected areas that would curtail shipping. A number of large and small foundations, like the Rockefeller Philanthropy Foundation and Makeway, formerly the Tides Foundation Canada, are funding this part of the campaign to stop the last energy corridor for Alberta's oil to reach global markets. However, the current evolved strategy is not confined to Alberta or Canada. It is about transforming the world by ending capitalism and forcing a new net zero civilization that is not based on hydrocarbons. This compulsory energy transition means reducing global human carbon dioxide emissions to zero or net zero, something only achievable through totalitarian means. A sudden and significant drop in our living standard is a requirement 
to get to zero emissions. And we in the Western world will face the very real consequences of energy poverty and the increased likelihood of freezing in the dark. The sellers of net zero do not convey the loss of freedom and the likelihood of real human suffering it will bring in its wake. The costs of net zero to our civilization and humanity are too high, and the benefits of hydrocarbons to human flourishing need to be considered. Our current system may not be perfect, but it has improved the care of our environment and planet and people, unlike any others. This is a system worth restoring and fighting for. Today, I'll be speaking with Deidre Garrick, independent researcher and energy advocate about her research on the anti-development agenda targeting potential transportation routes for Canadian oil through Arctic waters. Deidre has worked in the oil and gas industry for over 15 years. She has held roles of varying seniority in joint venture contracts where she was responsible for negotiating access to pipelines, compressors, plants, and batteries. She has also been involved in drafting and interpreting contracts and working collaboratively with stakeholders. Her last role was leading the joint venture department at a mid-sized natural gas producer. In her spare time, Deidre is an independent energy advocate who writes articles and open letters that are published on energynow.ca and are widely shared on social media. She advocates to inspire energy supporters to have confidence to speak up proudly for the Canadian industry from coast to coast in an effort to have balanced, honest, fact-based conversations. Thank you for joining me today, Deidre. Well, thank you so much for having me, Tammy. I really appreciate this opportunity to get to share some of my research with your audience uh, and as many people as possible, because I really think it is important to understand what's going on. And I am really glad that you're talking about the underlying agenda of what this movement appears to be uh, related to decreasing capitalism, if not completely wiping it out um, and or enacting some sort of social change. Um, I, I think your work has been really pivotal because we couldn't really understand the logic at first, like why do they want to transport via rail instead of pipeline? But I think you were able to very effectively articulate what is going on. And I think my research just uh, provides another example of what they're attempting to do right now. So thank you very much for having me on. Well, thank you. Thank you for those kind words. Um, well, to get into it, what what has led you to this research, and can you give your our, our listeners a brief summary of what you found? So, um, I just sort of stumbled upon this a bit by accident, to be honest. Uh, I was talking with a friend a couple of years ago, and um, you know, we were sort of discussing different legislative changes that we were hearing, as well as uh, some regulations that we were hearing that. The Canadian federal liberal government was uh, enacting 1 of those being bill C 88 and its impacts on the Mackenzie Valley and and basically stopping any sort of um, oil and gas fossil fuel development up there. Um, that's been a bit of a contentious area for a number of years, but, but. You know, a number of companies had finally pulled their licenses and said, we're not going to continue pursuing the opportunity to develop up here. And then, um, you know, there, there were sort of some other conversations around uh, the port of Churchill, which. Um, it, it, because of all of the egress constraints um, in you know, West and East and, and South. 
um, Churchill had become uh, talked about more and more, and I know we've been talking about Churchill as egress for a number of years, and and it, it sort of seemed like it would never uh, come to fruition because there would be no need for it. But with the the current constraints to egress, Churchill started to become more and more common. But we we as we were talking, we were kind of talking about the legislation and regulations we were hearing about, and I started looking into it and. And it appeared to me as if the ENGOs, the anti-development groups, were actively trying to disrupt and constrain shipping. And so I just kind of started on this research and, and discovery mission. And honestly, um, it, it took a lot of time, but it was somewhat easy to start to paint the picture because the organizations involved in this are, are quite transparent about what they're trying to do. Um, I have no special information right now. I did simple Google searches and was able to find some very interesting information. So um, that that's kind of how I got into this. It's probably not the most interesting story, but I think it just shows how when you start to really research this stuff, you start to find some really interesting things. Um, and then to give a, a, a bit of a summary about what I found, and we can certainly uh, go into a great greater depth on this. Um, what I was able to uncover, uh, which I think is, is kind of the smoking gun and the most important piece of this is um, the Switzerland-based Oak Foundation gave the World Wildlife Fund almost $900,000 US in 2018 to implement a network of marine protected areas to protect critical habitats and develop, and I quote, regulations that constrain the cumulative impacts of shipping within sustainable limits in the Arctic. And so it, it has become very clear that there is a very coordinated agenda to constrain shipping. Um, and um, yeah, they're really, they're really not, uh, they're, they're not uh, shy about being open about what they're trying to do here. That's a really good point because quite often when these issues are pointed out and you know put together or dots connected or whatever, the first thing out of uh, an activist mouth is that, oh, it's just a conspiracy theory. And the thing is, how can it be a conspiracy when you're just pointing out exactly what they're saying? You know, they're like you said, they're extremely clear about what what they want. Um, so. They want to stop the shipping. So what do you think the ultimate goal is of this campaign? Well, I think there's, it's probably multifaceted. Um, so my concern and why I have spent hours and hours doing research on this and trying to get the message out to as many people as possible is because I do think there is the possibility that they will try to enact another tanker ban similar to Bill C-48 up in the Arctic. Um, and again, that would um, that would impact egress. So I, I, I really worry about 
um, what the legislative or regulatory uh, impacts are going to be, particularly since we know that a number of the senior members of some of our more prominent Canadian ENGO groups are now working in our prime minister's office. They have a tremendous amount of influence and control and they are they're certainly using it. So um, what I think that they are trying to achieve, um, I, I can see three things quite clearly. And I, I think it really does all tie back into your transnational progressive movement, which I, I really do think is, is spot on. Um, I think that what they're doing in the Arctic is just very representative of the the ultimate goal, the the pot of the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow in, in a certain sense for them. And so what I believe that they want to achieve is uh, preventing development and disrupting and constraining shipping in the Arctic. Uh, they want to increase the amount of Canadian water and land under conservation area. And they also want to replace heating oil, diesel, and other fossil fuel energy sources with renewables in the Arctic. And I'm happy to uh, get a little further into uh, how they're kind of doing some of those things and the objectives um, or how they're going to achieve their objectives, I should say. Okay. Um, one of the the things you, you mentioned about your, your concern that they'll invoke something similar like Bill C-48, the tanker ban. And, you know, on the one hand, I would think, okay, maybe that's a route they want to go, but bills can be revoked. And so if you, I, I was looking at the World Wildlife Fund and in May they came out with this um, report outlining their priority areas for conservation. If they can get a network of these ma uh, marine protected areas, that is much more difficult to remove that status. And, you know, because it becomes this, this we're protecting the, the wildlife and the oceans and the ocean life. Now, good luck trying to, to get that designation removed after the fact. Yes, absolutely. And so um, I'm happy to uh, get in a little bit further on how I believe they're going to achieve their objectives. Now, I think what, um, maybe I'll just back up a minute here, which I, I think what is quite interesting for people to understand a little bit more about um, where some of this started and, and, and kind of how, how high it goes, I, I guess we can say for lack of a better term. And then um, I think that'll tie into how they can actually achieve these objectives. Um, so one of the first things I uncovered was that in December 2016, Canada, um, through our Prime Minister's, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's uh, PMO, uh, and the U.S. via, at the time, President Obama's White House, they released the Joint Arctic Leaders Statement, and they announced this new partnership to embrace opportunities and confront challenges in, in the Arctic, um, and they wanted to create a, a northern partnership. And I think what's interesting about that is that um, when this was released in December 2016, Donald Trump was already elected um, as, as president-elect, and uh, Barack Obama was in his second term, and, and that was coming to an end. So um, it did appear that 
there were measures in place to to push this through before Trump took office, because I think most people rightfully were afraid that he was going to repeal any of these uh, bans or moratoriums, et cetera, that were put in place. So we can see that um, by 2016, they had already kind of got to the highest offices in, in both Canada and the US. And they do talk a lot about, um, you know, creating low impact shipping, um, creating a future uh, free from risks of offshore oil and gas activities. Um, reducing the reliance in northern communities on diesel and replacing it with efficient renewable power. Um, so, you know, we were starting to see a lot of um, this very similar language throughout all of the, the websites, the press releases, and, and everything else that I've read on this. And like I say, up at the highest levels of, of our two governments. Um, and so this is why I, I do believe that these groups can be quite successful because they already had the, um, the, the decision makers and influencers of power on side. Now, I think Trump probably threw a little wrench into that for four years, but now with Biden, we know that he's very supportive of climate action and environmental protection, et cetera. So I think there, we're, we are going to see an even stronger push for some of these measures. And so I'll just talk a little bit about how I believe they're going to um, achieve their objectives. And uh, I think the first way that they can be most effective is by developing regulations to constrain development and, and impact the shipping in the Arctic. And uh, as you had mentioned, these uh, marine protected areas or marine refuges appear to be uh, one of the, the best uh, regulations that they can put in place. And, and they very much are actively pursuing um, these marine protected areas and refuges. Um, Canada already has a number of them in place, but, but we can see that they really are um, working to put even more in place. Um, and then the other way that I can see that they're attempting to do this is through are creating low impact shipping corridors. And again, this is another regulatory roadblock. And, and that's just, you know, it appears to be this is how they're just going to do it. They're just going to put up regulatory roadblock after roadblock. And, and you're right, once you put in things like marine protected areas, that sounds really great. The public is not going to want that repealed if another another party gains power. So these are very, um, the ENGOs are very sophisticated and, and nobody should underestimate their knowledge and, and their power. They know what they're attempting to do. They know how to influence governments and they know how to effectively manipulate the public so that they get um, the social license will say to implement the rules and regulations and constraints that they want. Um, and, and unfortunately in, in Canada, our government is even funding the creation of these types of uh, roadblocks. Um, they're funding a group called the Arctic Corridors Research Project out of the University of Ottawa, who is studying uh, 
the creation of low impact shipping areas. And so I think that's, you know, another way that they're doing this is low impact shipping areas. Um, again, that would potentially limit uh, the size of tanker that could go in um, if, you know, if not just completely limiting tanker traffic altogether. Um, and then the other uh, way that I can see that they're already working to uh, to help sort of decide maybe where some of these regulations should be um, is by creating culturally significant marine areas. And this group out of the University of Ottawa has already identified an entire area that covers the whole Hudson Strait. And so, um, although it's maybe not right at Churchill or Port Nelson, um, the Hudson Strait is the passageway whereby you'd have to send your tankers to and from to get to either of those ports. So if you're impeding access through the Hudson Strait, you're you're choking off egress, and and so there is really no usefulness to building a pipeline or an energy corridor up to the Arctic anywhere, Port Nelson, Port of Churchill, or anywhere else, because you're not going to be able to get your product in or out. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's hard to know whether there really is a need to cover the entire Hudson Strait, but I am not sure that uh, need it matters to some of these groups. <laughs> no, not at all, especially like uh, when I was taking a look at this, um, World Wildlife Fund report, and they have these maps and they have 3 different scenarios. So the 1st scenario is, um. Quite stringent at 31% of the area and they and they have this, um. These little highlighted places where the priority areas, these are the ones we'd like. These are the ones that are existing. Um, and like you say, they, even in the low priority 1, the scenario 1, the minimum scenario. The Hudson Strait is pretty much blocked off and then each scenario increasing scenario is adds a little bit more of the area that that's set aside. And so the 1st minimum 1 is 31% of the of almost like all the Arctic area. And then the 2nd 1 is 39% and then the 3rd 1 is 47%. And in their document, they talk about how they want to spiral it or ratchet it. So scenario one is what you start with, but the ultimate goal is to get at least 50% of the Arctic area, particularly the, 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 the regions that are near the land where you might run ships and all of that would be protected. And I, I think of how the UN biodiversity negotiations are taking place in September. And so what kind of new commitments is the government of Canada going to make based on what the World Wildlife Fund is presenting to them. And they've got a lot of stuff on their website, which, by the way, happens to be funded by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. So they might have started with seed money from the Oak Foundation, but these other foundations end up contributing to these efforts as well. Yeah, I, I think maybe we can step aside from specific um, discussion around the Arctic right now and maybe talk a little bit about the ENGOs in general. Um, for the last year or so, I've been doing quite a bit of research into the ENGOs as well. 
um, you know, my Arctic research led me to have to understand them a little bit better um, because admittedly I, I, you know, I had heard random things here or there, but I, I didn't kind of map out sort of who and what they are, um, but I started to do a lot more research into them. And, and I think you're absolutely right. Um, the, the seed money from the Oak Foundation is, is always just the start. They get money from somewhere. It might be well-meaning, but um, they all sort of fund each other. And when you start to map them out, which, which I did, I created a fairly extensive mind map of just one of the Canadian-based foundations. And the connections are, 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 are startling. Um, you know, they're all very much interconnected. Um, they're interconnected into different levels of governments, uh, particularly here in Canada. I'm assuming they are in the UK, in, in the US, in, in various parts of the world. Um, I'm, you know, specifically looking at Canada, but you can see how interconnected all these groups are and how they're all sort of passing money around. Um, it's there's not a ton of transparency around what that money is for. Um, and it really does seem that a lot of these groups are sort of grant making funding foundations. It's not really clear what actual societal benefit they offer. Um, but yes, there's millions and millions of dollars that go into these movements. Um, and, and I don't think that anybody should underestimate these ENGO groups. They're very sophisticated. They're very well funded. Um, they're internationally funded. And they're willing to do what they have to do to uh, to reach their goal, is my belief. Um, and I'm not saying that everybody involved is um, intentionally malicious or destructive. I think you know perhaps a number of people have very good intentions, but I think we cannot underestimate the negative impacts that will occur as a result of some of the work that these groups are doing. Deidre, I'm really sorry. My internet stopped right when you started talking about the ENGOs and your mind map. <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> so I, would you be able to revisit that? Sure. Um, yeah. Okay. So will really you sorry. cut? Yeah, no, that's okay. Well, so will you cut if I end up? repeating because I'm, I'm not sure where <laughs> um, yeah i'll yeah. Uh, i will just um edit that bit so that it flows properly if that's okay, okay. all right okay let me see um gosh i'm really uh, sorry no no that's that's perfectly okay i'm i'm just completely free flowing all of this so i have to just uh think about what i said <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, so, I would actually like to take a moment to talk about the ENGO movement uh, as a whole and not specific to the Arctic, because I have been doing quite a bit of research into the ENGOs. Um, this Arctic research has led me to have to delve a little bit deeper into a lot of these organizations to really understand who and, and what they are. Um, and. And I've been able to discern that a lot of them really just are grant making or you know funding organizations that that don't really um, 
create a lot. They don't they don't really do a lot. They they just seem to sort of pass money back and forth. And I I think when you had had talked about um, the seed money coming from the Oak Foundation, but um, World Wildlife was getting funding from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Uh, these kind of things are not surprising to me at all because I can really see how interconnected all of these groups really are. They sort of just pass about money from one group to another and to another, and they're sort of sub organizations. And it's it's very difficult to track where the money goes and what it does. And I think. That's really important for people to understand because these groups are very sophisticated and they're very well funded, um, often funded at an international level. And so I think we cannot underestimate uh, the power of this movement. It, it isn't going to end. And, and so I think it is important that people understand what is going on and why and, and start to speak up um, because the EMGOs are, they're, they're very interconnected and they have a very loud, powerful voice. You're absolutely right. And, and one of the things I find so problematic is that the foundations and the ENGOs get charitable status. But are they actually doing charity work? They have a political agenda and they're pursuing that political agenda with all of their force, with all of their will, and yet they get government money, they're tax exempt, and it, it just seems wrong. Yeah, that is one of the things that I find the most shocking is as I've been sort of uh, tracking some of this stuff, I can see how much money comes from the Canadian government alone, and, and I can only imagine uh, what's coming from you know the U.S. government to the U.S. organizations. Um, and uh, it, yeah, it, it's very very stunning who's sort of involved in in some of these things, and you have to question why they're involved. And so. Um, uh, maybe I will just quickly talk about. Who I see is involved in this Arctic um, movement, because I, I think it's very interesting. I, I think people will be very interested to kind of understand or, or just hear about who's involved. And, and I think you have to question why it is that many of them are involved. And so, as I had mentioned, um, in 2016, there was the um, Canada US joint Arctic leaders statement issued. And in it, they um, specifically reference this group called the Arctic Funders Collaborative. And, and they refer to them as a, a group of um, philanthropists and the, that are very interested in Arctic protection. And this group gave $27 million to Arctic protection. And so I looked into them. And um, in 2016, there were uh, 11 members, I believe it was. Uh, the membership has seemed to change um, literally kind of, you know, every six months or so, but they had about 11 members. And their, their groups like um, Make Way, uh, which was formerly Tides Canada, uh, we've got the Rockefellers involved, Oak out of Switzerland, um, uh, Climate Justice Resilience Fund, um, a bunch of like really small trusts and organizations like Trust for Mutual Understanding, 444S Foundation, 
Um, you know, these are just groups that are pretty small people. I had never heard of, so I assume a lot of people haven't uh, Gordon and Benny Moore foundation, like you had said. But what really struck me was that Lush Cosmetics was also a member, and I just find that so strange. Why would a UK-based cosmetics company be interested in giving money to protect Canada and US's Arctic? Like it, it's just these really strange things that, that just don't make a lot of sense. So you have to question why some of these groups are involved and in giving so much money to it. Well, Lush was one of the big funders, or at least a, a, a vocal participant in the the Tar Sands campaign in Europe. So when, I'm trying to remember when it was, it was before Keystone was canceled, um, Lush was running all different kinds of ads and stuff in the UK um, about how terrible it was and how they weren't going to fund it and all this kinds of stuff. So. I'm not surprised they're on that list. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I, I think when you've been uh, researching this space long enough, nothing surprises you. So, yeah, I wasn't <laughs> necessarily surprised, but I was suspicious for sure. And and uh, you're absolutely right. I do know that Lush is very involved in this. Um, I, I, yeah, both in Canada and in Europe, they, um, and in fact, um, that's sort of how Cody Battershill, who uh, co-founded Canada Action here in Calgary, how he ended up getting started was running into a, a protest, uh, a protest held by Lush employees outside of Vancouver's Lush store. Um, and, you know, they were protesting uh, pipelines in the tar sands and he stopped and talked to them and said, like, what are you doing? This was, I believe, in 2012. So this was really the start of things. And, you know, none of us had really heard very clearly about what was happening. Um, when he talked to them, he realized that we were going to have a problem. And that was why he started Canada Action to start advocating for Canadian oil and gas, even though he is a realtor here in Calgary. Um, but he, he could foresee that, you know, sort of unlikely groups and corporations were already starting to mobilize to to try and stop development and to try and um, uh, damage the reputation of of oil and gas and, and the brands associated with them be the big corporations like Shell or you know, Total, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And what's what's very interesting is that while BP and Shell and Total or whatever are pulling out of Canada, they're investing in Russia, and at the same time that that we're there, there's this movement to shut off the ability for oil from, you know, the the mainland of Canada to get out to enter the world market through the Arctic. At the same time, Russia has their their huge new, um, is it the Vostok the Vostok project, where they are looking at an extraordinary amount of development so this project which is on the other side of the arctic near the north pole the they're going to um build two airports 15 towns for the projected 400,000 workers needed for construction for there's they project there will be at least 140,000 permanent workers for the operations they're going to build 800 kilometers of pipelines while Canada can't seem to finish or approve, finish approved pipelines, 
They're going to have a seaport to take tankers around the northern sea route, and they're expecting to begin the, um, the tanker movements in 2024. Oh, yeah, that that is all really interesting as well. And I, I didn't study the geopolitics of the Arctic, um, and that is certainly a rabbit hole. Anyone could go down and find out some very interesting stuff. Um, but, you know, I have sort of a high level understanding of what is going on there. And Russia is very, very interested in gaining access to the Arctic and very interested in gaining access to Canada's Arctic. And you know that they're doing it in part because they recognize that there is value in the resources as well as 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 egress options. Um, and I think, you know, if, if we let uh, Russia too far into Canada's Arctic region, it's not going to go well for us. And so, um, yeah, it, it's pretty stunning when you think about the the investments going into Russia from money that should be coming into countries like Canada that have very stringent regulations in place. Absolutely. Um, I, I saw there was, I think on climate, one of the, the climate news networks, they had an article in June out explaining how they were really offended by this new Russian project. And I was thinking, but you're not really doing anything about it. And at the same time, the, the environmental groups are are trying to prevent the development of Canadian resources or American resources. And on the one hand, like the, the tar sands strategy campaign document that I referenced at the beginning in it, they were very clear that they wanted to make it unpalatable for companies to invest in Canada. So you get this diversion of investment into places like Russia and Russia's exempt from the Paris Agreement. So yeah. we're bound by all these things. They keep saying that Canada's in the top 10 of emitters. China's number one and its emissions are more than the other top nine combined. So mm -hmm. Canada has 1.6% of emissions and yet we're supposed to kill our economy and switch over and everything while China, India, Russia, um, like six of the top 10 aren't bound by the Paris Agreement. So it's, it's just unreal. And these foundations, like you mentioned, um, they're funding it and their, their funding sources are murky. So a, a group like Tides Foundation, for example, they get money and the donors remain anonymous. And it's almost like a money laundering thing because that money then gets distributed out to others and you can't tell where the original donation came from. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, there is just an absolute um, lack of transparency. And so one of the things that I have also done in an effort to try to better understand what's going on is I uh, put in an access to information request to the federal government. And uh, I believe that was about eight months ago now. I am still waiting. <laughs> they get in touch with me periodically and say, oh, well, we need to clarify this and we need to clarify that. And they ask for a six month extension. And, um, you know, there, there is just such a lack of transparency. I have no idea if I'm ever going to hear from them. Um, but I, yeah, I can guarantee that um, if I get anything, it's not going to be uh, overly transparent. Um, it probably won't discuss 
uh, some of the things that they are doing with these ENGO groups, because we know that the Canadian government is working very, very closely with them. Um, the World Wildlife Fund, although not a member of the Arctic Funders Collaborative, is, is very active in the Arctic, like you had mentioned. Um, and for people who don't know, uh, their former uh, executive director, or president, I'm not sure what his title was, of the World Wildlife Fund was Gerald Butts. And he held that role until he moved into uh, the PMO's office here in, in Canada under his very, very good longtime friend, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So uh, they have a tremendous amount of control and influence and, and, and there is just no honest transparency around what is going on. And I think you're right. Um, it, Russia is getting pipelines built. China is building coal plants. Like all these countries are doing whatever they want. And, and for whatever reason, Canada is self-flagellating and capitulating to anything and everything that's requested of us. And I, I think that it is in part due to our cowardly political leaders. And, and that's at all levels of government. Um, here in Calgary, I've, I've looked at some of the climate action um, initiatives that are on the city of Calgary's website. I mean, there is no support for the oil and gas sector from the city of Calgary. And, and I think it's a real shame. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't uh, protect the environment and, and, and do the things that need to be done. But oil and gas is a bedrock industry here in Calgary. And there's absolutely no support for it on the city of Calgary's website. Wow, that's outrageous. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll digress maybe a little further from my Arctic research and I'll maybe share this story with the audience. Um, I attended a uh, climate summit a couple of months ago uh, hosted by the city of Calgary. It was a two-day event. Uh, their keynote speaker was Bruce Laurie, who is the president of the Ivy Foundation, which is uh, a a Canadian foundation that has been actively working to stop development all over. They they give millions and millions of dollars to the ENGOs. Uh, Bruce Laurie is very, very connected and influential. He was one of the key architects of Ontario's Green Energy Act, uh, which has resulted in poverty-inducing, skyrocketing energy prices in Ontario. And so he was the keynote speaker, talked all about how we have to get off fossil fuels, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they had um, uh, a session by Michael Mann, the, um, the creator of the now discredited uh, hockey stick graph for CO2. Um, they had members of the Pemina Institute. Uh, they had only one oil and gas related company as part of the session, and that was ATCO and they were talking about hydrogen. There was absolutely no discussion about the advances being made in the oil and gas sector. Now this was put on and funded by the city of Calgary that benefits greatly from the oil and gas sector. There was no discussion about oil and gas. It was absolutely despicable. I sent an open letter to every councillor and mayor. Uh, I heard 
um, nothing back, but from three of them, it was, yeah, it was just, it, it's, it's appalling how deep this goes within our various levels of government. That's really disturbing <laughs> that they would do that. Um, again, I'm not surprised to some extent, knowing who the mayor of Calgary is and, um, how the inroads that have been made at the various universities and whatnot throughout Canada, but also in Alberta. And um, so that being said, I mean, what, what effect do you think these, these regulatory changes and policies will have on average Canadians? Well, I think we can see um, very clearly right now with the cost of absolutely everything going up in Canada. And I'm not sure what you're seeing in the UK, but um, I, I think make no mistake, once you start adding on a lot of regulations and costs such as carbon taxes, it it does impact um, the average person. I've really noticed the price of food has gone up. And I mean, if you're already on a fixed income, uh, the, the cost of food increasing is very, very material. Um, you know, I think one of my biggest concerns, though, is um, if we completely remove fossil fuels from our energy source um, and we, we put in renewables, especially now when we're at the stage where, you know, we, we just don't, we don't have the proper infrastructure in place. We don't have reliability. Um, if, if we get rid of reliable, cheap fossil fuels, it's it's going to be detrimental. Everything we need in our modern Canadian society requires energy. And so, you know, imagine not being able to have electricity for us to have this call right now, um, for our computers to not work, for our internet to be down, uh, not to have our cell phones. You know, it's it's these simple things that we take for granted, but. You know, when you're being asked to uh, shut off your air conditioning during peak load times, because the grid is is being compromised. Um, that's 1 thing. I mean, when it's really hot, it's nice to have air conditioning, but you can survive without it. But I mean, imagine, you know, you're without reliable power for days on end or, you know, hours and hours and you don't really know when you're going to get it. Um, these are the kinds of things that really do cause me big, big concern. And we are already seeing that these groups want to enact rules around um, how much you can emit. So, you know, perhaps it would be like, oh, well, you know, you've reached your carbon budget. Um, something that these groups do talk about is creating carbon budgets. Uh, if you've reached your carbon budget, maybe you don't get to drive to work today. Uh, you know, oh, you can't fly anywhere because that's going to exceed your carbon budget. Um, you know, the, the International Energy Agency already put out a recommendation um, to improve fuel efficiency by limiting highway speeds to 100 kilometers an hour. And then I saw another group, and I can't recall who it was, went even further and said, well, actually, I think we should limit speeds to 60 kilometers an hour. So, <laughs> you know, uh, like now you take a trip, a three-hour trip between Calgary and Edmonton is now what, you know, six, seven hours? Like it, it just starts to become um, really ridiculous. And And I know people dismiss this and they 
kind of tell me, well, you know, I, I, I don't think it's going to go that way. Nobody will accept this, but we have to realize how easily people accepted things throughout COVID um, and, and we're starting to see some correlations there. They're saying, well, you know, we locked down for COVID, we reduced emissions. So now we're going to have to have climate related lockdowns and Anybody who thinks, oh, no, 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 that, you know, the citizenry will revolt and, and they're not going to accept that. I, I don't think that we should so easily assume that when you create fear, people are willing to uh, abide by the rules that that are set that they believe are set uh, for their betterment. And so these are the kind of things that start to cause me concern because as radical as some of these ideas are. Um, you know, we are starting to see them slowly, slowly enacted. You're absolutely right. And what I've, I, there's a couple of points I just want to make in relation to that. So the first one is about carbon budgets, because it was yesterday that the net zero advisory panel, which is the, this government adores advisory panels. And I have to say, it's very much like the European union because they have all these expert panels. So the, I don't know what actually the MEPs do in Europe because they have all these advisory panels and expert panels making all the policies for them. In any event, the net zero advisory panel said yesterday that it's considering having a carbon budget for companies and people. Now, I suspect it'll probably start out with, oh, well, heavy emitters need to know how what their budget is, and then it'll trickle down to individuals. But given how they want to implement the ESG scores for people, it wouldn't take much to merge your ESG score with your carbon budget, and then maybe you get extra budgets or whatever. And what I found so offensive is that over the past, I would say five years or so, probably longer in some instances, there's one researcher out of Oxford University by the name of Tina Fawcett. And she's been trying to have this idea of a carbon budget, personal carbon tra trading, personal carbon tracker since 2009. So she's been you know, on this horse for a long time. But so there's been this trickle of academic articles and from institutes and op-eds and all this talking about this so this net zero advisory panel said well we're we're just drawing on the academic research and what experts say it's like but you these foundations have been funding these studies to push this idea that they now take from this advisory panel and say see look the experts say that this is the what we should do we should have these these carbon budgets we should have carbon trackers and so on yeah, I'll just interject for a second. I can absolutely corroborate what you're saying. Um, what they all seem to do is reference each other's reports, which are, you know, written with a certain outcome in mind. And it's, exactly. it's really frustrating because you're right. They present each other as experts. And so, yeah, you know, why, why wouldn't you uh, agree with what the experts are saying? Unfortunately, they're they're coordinated um, to say the same thing. Yes, exactly. So th then the other point I wanted to make was that when we think about what this will do to our way of life and how people live and the potential suffering, and I believe Rupert Darwall is quite correct when he says that living at the whim of nature is something that humanity has been struggling to overcome forever. So now that we're able to be safer, 
and less at the mercy mercy of nature because of hydrocarbons, because as Alex Epstein says, they make us safe from climate, the ANGOs and our captive political class want to throw it all away before there's something better to replace it. They want to turn back the clock to a time when humanity was at the mercy of nature. And you know, there's something just fundamentally anti-human about this way of thinking and the direction that our political leaders are leading us. And I agree with you when you when you, you know some people say, oh, there's no way they'll do it. We'll fight back. Well, when? when? When are people going to fight back and say, I don't want this? But I think part of the problem is that there's probably 50% of the population aren't even aware that this conversation is happening. They get the little headlines, but they're really not aware of what the implications are for how they how they're going to live, what their life was going to be like. Um, there was a a study that was featured a few weeks ago, um, where it was by a fellow named Vogel and and some other people. And it was called the socioeconomic conditions for satisfying human needs at low energy use. And their conclusion was that North Americans need to cut their energy use by about 90%. And they put out a framework for what it means for how we live. A family of four should live in a, in a, in a space no bigger than 640 square feet four people and wow. they're supposed to use 90% less energy. You will be allotted a nine pound um, amount of clothing per year. You're allowed to have 20 washes of your clothes a year. I mean, it's outrageous that they actually itemized how we ought to live our life. And what worries me is there's people like Mark Carney who would be very happy with a technocracy where you have experts coming up with some algorithm that's deciding what format your lifestyle ought to be, you know, all to be in line with your carbon budget, how that's going to be determined, who knows. But sorry, I have to get that off my chest. <laughs> yeah, no, and I'm happy to hear you saying some of this because I think for far too long, the conversation has sort of been a bit Melba toast. We sort of talk about things, but, you know, nobody really wants to rock the boat too much. And, and, and I will say the oil and gas sector hasn't done itself a, a great service. They're not pushing back enough. Um, you know, I absolutely think at least 50% of the oil and gas sector doesn't believe that this stuff is happening. It, it seems outrageous. Um, and, and you think like who in their right mind would even come up with these things, but, but they're happening. Um, you know, you and I are, are in the space and we're reading this stuff and we're studying it. And, and I guarantee that we don't even know a fraction of what's going on. Um, and, and, and it's moving at such a rapid pace that you can't keep up because it's, it's like they want to one up each other. You know, tomorrow there'll be a report where it says we have to reduce by 95%. Like it, it just, um, it gets more and more outrageous, but there's not enough pushback happening. And, and that is absolutely something that causes me concern. And, and they, then they tie in the, the race issue too. Like I can see with this Arctic stuff, they are really working with indigenous communities to gain their support. And so they take their solar panel uh, test project around and they show them like, oh, hey, you know, you can be self-sufficient if you can use, uh, we can install solar arrays up here and you don't need to use diesel. And, 
and you know you're going to make money off of this and and you know look how great you know can we just get your support for what we're doing and and the communities go okay well maybe this is a good idea um but they're not getting the full picture that you know solar doesn't work when the sun isn't shining and the sun doesn't shine for large portions of the winter in the arctic but um the messaging is is such that if you push back against these kind of things you're racist and you you know you're trying to uh disadvantage indigenous communities or or whatever the messaging is and it just gets you know it just all gets wrapped up into a really difficult conversation to have, but I think we have to have it and we have to be more transparent about what we're seeing as people who are doing research in this space so that we can start to get the average Canadian or European American, et cetera, on board to start to push back against some of this stuff. Yeah, I don't know if that's possible in the in Europe anymore. Um, the European Green Deal is just a travesty and if you look at what they're doing for their farm to fork strategy and the effects it has on agriculture and what that will do to the food supply uh it's i don't know maybe the europeans when they're starving tend to riot maybe that's what will what will happen i don't know but um, i think there might still be a chance in in north america but now with all the censorship online I think it's very difficult to get the message across because when you have every major television station at the nightly news pushing the whole idea of a climate emergency and the race issues and everything else, when does a, does just an average person hear an alternative message? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And the um, corporate media message is becoming more and more hysterical as well. Um, everybody, I think, is very familiar with Greta Thunberg, but I'm not sure if people are familiar with a young woman named Zia Bastida. Uh, I think maybe she's from Colombia. I don't quote me on that, though. But uh, she's. It, it is appearing that perhaps they're trying to make her become the new Greta Thunberg, um, and and she is is far more radical. I mean, she she talks about um, and. She demands, uh, I, and I, I quote that word, she demands climate justice, climate justice from environmental racism. She wants disability justice and green careers, and she does not want a Eurocentric um, educational, a climate educational system. Um, she talks about greenwashing and stopping fossil fuel infrastructure and and stopping capitalism and just all of these things and, and says it with such passion and more and more people seem to be on side with it and it's very disconcerting because it's very hard to push back against these kinds of things because she says that she is indigenous so as soon as you um want to go in a different direction than what she's saying then yeah, then it becomes that you're racist or bigoted or something like that. And and so yeah, they've done a really great job of owning the narrative and, and pushing a certain narrative and, and finding the right spokespeople that makes it very difficult to push back against. Well, you know, even if it's possible to find that type of person to help speak out and champion hydrocarbons, I don't know if they'd get coverage because I think of like 
last year um, before the lockdown and whatnot, there was a German teenager named Naomi Zeibt who was the, dubbed the anti Greta. And mm -hmm. the German government went after her and they made her pull down her videos that were on YouTube and stuff. So, you know, even if I, I try not to be unhopeful, but I think it's it's a big challenge and more people need to to stand up and uh, and stand up for the hydrocarbon industry, because I think what what has been the effect so far on on families who work in the industry? And what, you know, it'll be absolutely crazy if they manage to succeed in what they're planning to do. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I always try to stay optimistic and hopeful as well, but it, it does get very depressing to keep reading some of these things um, because it, it does seem, uh, it just seems overwhelming and like we can't really, um, we can't really effectively push back against it in, in part because you're right um, anybody who, who does push back and, and makes a, a compelling argument like Naomi site has done. I, I have been following her for a while. Um, they just get silenced or they just get discredited. So then, you know, people just sort of automatically uh, tune out to these people. And so it's hard to, it's hard to be optimistic, but at the same time, I think it is important that as many people speak up and, and just, you know, have basic conversations with your families and with your family and your friends and, and try to explain to them what's happening. Um, you know, I always say to people here in Canada, well, I don't really know much about the automotive sector in Ontario or the fisheries industry in Atlantic Canada. So we can't really expect people to have a fulsome understanding of oil and gas when it, it isn't their primary industry. So we have to help people understand why it is important to them. And I mean, it's, it's just sort of one heart to heart conversation at a time. If you're not comfortable speaking, you know, media, writing open articles, et cetera, um, that, you know, that's certainly not something everybody is comfortable doing, but I think everybody can have face-to-face uh, -face conversations with people that uh, they interact with in, in, a, in a friendly capacity on a regular basis. Those people trust and respect you. That's why they're friends with you. Hopefully, you know, your family trusts or respects you as well. And, and so hearing a, a counter, counter narrative, it can be really eye opening for people. Um, we all have a level of influence and we just have to find the courage to speak up. That's an excellent point. And I, and I hope that people will go out and do that. Um, I, I wanted to add 1 thing because. 1 of the, the things that I think the industry has fall a trap they've fallen into is this this thinking that it's just about rule changes you know they just need to adapt to the rule changes that are being made and you know they can go on their way they'll have at least some reliable sense of of what their what the expectations are and then they can fulfill their fiduciary duty in doing so um, and, and carry out their business. They just need to know the right rules. But what I try to get people to understand is that they're not changing the rules. They're changing the whole game. And there's no place for you in the new game. So if you would try to adapt to these rules and, and to cooperate and find common ground or all these different things, what you're doing is, is committing suicide for them. Because it's just this sort of ratcheting 
way of winding down your business instead of fighting back and saying what you're doing is wrong and we provide a, a really useful useful and valuable service to the public because without hydrocarbons you know life is pretty miserable it's back to living you know pre-victorian times and they keep talking about pre-victorian emissions well it was like that because we didn't have industrialization and people lived off the land and it was cold and damp and you know, not, not pleasant. It was very difficult to survive. But then the other thing that I wanted to to say is that is that um, the renewables are really impossible to sustain our way of life. Uh, they're intermittent. They're unreliable. They have a large footprint. They kill wildlife. Um, they're deleterious to nature. They have an unreal material use. I mean, the amount of minerals and construction materials required are just phenomenal. So when the NGOs are lobbying to stop something like carbon capture, utilization and storage and to stop nuclear power, then you have to know it's not about the climate. Because if it was, they would be embracing the fact that the industry has done amazing innovation to actually capture the the emissions and trap them underground or use them for tertiary recovery or in some cases the carbon X prize. They they took the emissions from a power plant and converted it, put it into syndicate blocks. And they were able to completely um, make net zero the emissions from the power plant. There's uh, an energy company in the United States who says they can actually do negative emissions, that they take more emissions, put it into the ground in order to extract, extract more oil and gas. And the burning of that oil and gas is still less emissions than what they're trapping underground. And yet the environmentalists will say, no, we want you to ban carbon capture. We don't want you to spend any money. We don't want tax credits for it. So it's not really about the emissions. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, the oil and gas sector in Canada has been doing everything that's been asked of it and more in some cases, and it's never enough. Um, just when they meet the stringent obligations set up by the anti-development groups, the goalposts get moved. And yeah, so yeah. I, I think it's time for people to wake up and and I realize that you know I'm, I'm being a bit uh, forthcoming forthright here with with what I'm saying and maybe a bit harsh um, but it is time for people to wake up and realize that this is not about the environment they're not going to back down the oil and gas sector is never going to meet the obligations that these groups want because the obligations are always going to change and so it's it's time to to find another way of dealing with things. And, and that doesn't mean including these people in all of your conversations. What distresses me the most is that some of the larger oil and gas companies are funding some of these ENGOs. I suspect it's in hopes that, that they'll work collaboratively together, but I think that's naive and, and it's time to recognize that. And it's time to, like you say, 
find a new strategy to help people understand the value of hydrocarbons because I certainly don't want to live in a world without hydrocarbons in Canada when it's you know minus 30 minus 40 um, without oil and gas we are going to die and so it, it's time for people who support responsible development to start explaining that to people because there is a fundamental lack of um, energy knowledge and energy education and so it's time to start teaching people connecting the dots to say that you know when you turn your furnace on it's it's burning natural gas so if you stop all natural gas which is what they're trying to do in in ontario right now if you prevent this you need another source for your heat like and if you don't have your heat there's a high chance you're going to die a very uncomfortable death is is that what you want um and it, it sounds morbid and harsh, but but this is the reality that I think some people are not fully appreciating. Exactly. And especially like after what happened in Texas. I mean, I know they try to pin it on the on the thermal generators, but it wasn't the thermal generators that that threw the grid off. And, you know, people were trying to burn stuff in their barbecue and dying from, you know, the smoke and whatnot. And on the one hand, we're we're trying to say we want to help the developing country get off burning biomass for their cooking and whatnot. And yet, if they take away the hydrocarbons and they think somehow it's all going to be electric, the grid will be constantly going down. And then what are we going to be doing to keep warm? And I know that in Germany, that was the first developed country to really try to pursue this pathway. Um, having lived there for six years, it was so expensive. Energy was so expensive and um, the electricity was was crazy and people were, you know, closing off parts of their houses because they couldn't keep it warm. It was too expensive and they were burning lots of wood. So, you know, Germany was supposed to being so environmental, they saw this huge increase of wood burning because people would have a fireplace just to try to keep warm in the winter. It was too expensive to heat their house. Yeah, and, and that is the real world impact of what ends up happening when you have poor energy policy, uh, which I see a lot of the Western world moving towards. Right, so I'm hopeful that this can help contribute to <laughs> this conversation, help to wake people up a little bit and, and appreciate the lifestyle that we have and that there's people out there who want to take it away and we need yes. to stop it. Yes. Well, thank you so much for this conversation about the Arctic and other things and um, just talking about the, the implications of the anti-development campaigns, not just in the Arctic, but how it has uh, ramifications for how we live our everyday lives. And um, thank you, Deidre Garrick, for, for your, sharing your knowledge in, on this issue. Well, thank you so much, Tammy. I really appreciate this opportunity and I really do appreciate all the work that you're doing and, and the bullets that you've kind of taken um, as a result of some of that work going public. It's not easy to be a target, um, but I sincerely appreciate your courage and your courage to keep going and, and speaking up because it's extremely important that we continue on with this conversation. Thank you, Deja. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you.